0: I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. While Psalm 32 ranks among the most penetrating psalms of repentance in the Scripture, technically it's a psalm of instruction. You wonder what that word maskal means. That's what it means. Instruction. You're probably somewhat familiar with it, but the term selah, as best we understand, is a term of pause. The psalms are poetry often put to music, and so uh, the psalmist, in his effort to communicate the sound theology, uh, really the theology of trusting the Lord, uh, calls for a pause at certain places. And as you know, In any context where communication is taking place, the pause is quite powerful. It often is used for the purpose of allowing those engaged in that communication to think about what has just been communicated. So that's what the Selah is there for, and I encourage you not to skip over it. If you ever are called upon to read Scripture publicly, I encourage you to use the Selah. Utilize it as it was intended by God to be used. It's not... A um, scribal edition. The Lord put it there. And so it's actually part of the scripture, as are the titles of the Psalms as well. So we want to include that. It has its purpose. In this passage that I've just read to you, David calls us to six truths. And with them combined, with these six truths collectively, you and I, if we will adhere to them, will experience the relief of repentance the pressure relief that comes with confession and forsaking of sin. There is in the spiritual life perhaps nothing more imprisoning than a dishonest view of self, a willingness not only to engage in sin, but to do all that's necessary for that sin to remain hidden, for it to be covered. We've spent much time uh, from our pulpit talking about repentance. There is no Christianity without repentance. Yet, as you know, so little preaching today is even remotely related to the doctrine of repentance. Many, many well-known preachers, a handful who are at times called America's pastor teach nothing about repentance, and yet they have a massive following. And think of why that's logically so. It is so because of this truth that, generically speaking and naturally speaking, man does not want to be confronted with his sin nor with his sinful state. It's the natural reality of the sinful condition, There's a lack of willingness for what is embarrassing, even shameful, to be uncovered. In my role as a pastor, I find that there is a stark line between the happiness of those with whom I have the privilege to interact and the unhappiness. And that line always, without exception, divides the repentant, from the unrepentant. It's just an absolutely stark black-and-white reality. There are some things to me in life and in ministry that are an occasion for a bit of a conundrum. This is not one of them. The stain of sin often brings a debilitation such that man is greatly capable of putting all kinds of spins on the perception of his own life. A good friend of mine said to me years ago, we were very young at the time, he was really a Christian mentor to me in the early days. I was 22, really, for the first time, just exposed to legitimate gospel teaching, and it was, it was actually pretty shallow, but at least it was the true gospel. Uh, my friend had grown up in a legitimate Christian home, and he said to me, you know, Todd, I have found that when those who profess to be in the Christian faith begin to avoid me it's the beginning of an exposure an unwilling exposure of their sin that's what he said to me 23 year old kid really who'd grown up in a pretty solid christian home i didn't know what to think of that at the time but i've certainly seen that to be the case in the moment that someone peels back begins to a little bit at a time or maybe a lot at a time separate himself herself from those who are committed to holiness, committed to righteousness, you can be certain that there is at least some strong possibility that there's something going on that shouldn't be going on. This was the case with David, was it not? The author of this psalm. David separated himself from those who would address his ungodliness. David was the king. He could do whatever he wanted. And of course, as you know, there's the the great and immeasurable value of his friend Nathan who came to him with much wisdom and care and in the right timing. Nathan, you can be certain, while he feared God more than he feared David, he certainly knew what David could do and had done to Uriah. Why would Nathan not be concerned that David might do the same thing To him. It was Uriah who would have exposed uh, unwittingly, unknowingly, David's sin. Uh, Nathan coming to him, he must have been at least somewhat concerned that David would turn on him and have him executed as well. And so, what we're looking at when we look at a psalm of repentance is not just the vehicle by which or the avenue by which uh, an individual can enjoy repentance and the relief that comes with repentance. What we're really looking at is a call for godly people to themselves engage in repentance, but also to call others to to the same. Be certain. The most unloving pattern you can establish in your life is an unwillingness to address the sin of those that you love. My dear and longtime friend Clayton Erb, as we had breakfast together a couple weeks ago, said to me, Todd, don't ever let things go unaddressed. In the church i sat back and breathed a heavy sigh and i said yeah i I know i know but listen equally as important as addressing things is addressing them in the right timing and all too often when there is someone who thinks that he or she is on the right side of an accusation there can be impatience Well, this situation is not being dealt with quickly enough. Well, God's timing is always best. I don't know exactly what God's timing is, but I often know that I have missed it. I know that I have tried to make things move more quickly than what was God's timing, and in other times I've moved too slowly. All I know is to just keep spending time alone with the Lord in the Word, in prayer, fasting, dealing with my own sin, attempting to nurture godliness in those who will give me that privilege, uh, allowing them, really inviting them to do the same thing with me, and believing that in God's good timing, He's going to work things out ultimately for His own good, and I just uh, thank him for that, that he is often cleaning up the mess that I might have in fact made in trying to clean up another mess. As I said, there are six things, really six truths in this passage that will encourage you and I think motivate you and I think really even result in you enjoying the relief of repentance. Let's look at them. Point number one, the delight of applied atonement i want you to experience the delight of applied atonement as david did he said blessed and you know this it's um, not inaccurate to say that the word blessed means happy they're not totally the same you know how that is with synonyms you say if two words are synonyms then we don't really need one of them. That's not true, because with synonyms, while they have much of the same meaning, they often are dissimilar in some ways. And so the blessed person is the one who is enjoying blessings. That's why he's happy. So to be blessed means to be happy, because being blessed is to be the recipient of someone else's grace. Someone is... Extending to you, potentially showering you with goodness that you don't deserve. And so David begins with this term, blessed is the one, in reference to the doctrine of atonement. If you were to have been an Old Testament saint, you would have been greatly familiar with the concept of atonement, even though you wouldn't have known how it would come to pass for you in the future. You would have had some picture of that in the execution of, of what was considered to be a sinless, really technically a spotless animal. Some might have looked at those animals and said, well, what did he do? Nothing. That's the point. The animal doesn't deserve to be executed. In fact, he even has the appearance of blamelessness in that there's no spot on him. Therefore, he not only is innocent, he looks to be innocent. His innocence is pictured in his external covering. So David, with a saturated understanding of this doctrine of atonement, says it this way, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. God does not erase your sins. He covers them. Your sins are what they are. They don't magically disappear. The fact is, they are what they are. But in that they are forgiven, you are not held accountable for them in eternity. Praise God that Christ's death accomplished that. So you rest in that and you delight in the fact that it is applied. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. It is covered in such a way that the judge of all creation, the judge of all the universe passes it over. He does not deal with you according to your sins blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity no blemish no stain blessed blessed in that he is not going to be the recipient of what he deserves and therefore happy Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. There is no guile. There is no guile in Nathaniel. the Bible tells us. "Is a man who was a pure man. There is ultimately no deceit in us because God has given us a new spirit. He's replaced the black heart with a new heart, the dead heart with a live heart. And so that passion for deceit is gone. It rears its ugly head from time to time, and that is the unredeemed humanity that Paul calls the flesh. But that natural compulsion to hide sin, that's the idea, that's the context, right? Hiding sin. It's gone. You want your sin to be exposed. You want it to be ultimately covered, therefore you're willing to uncover it. That's the person who's blessed and against whom the Lord does not count his iniquity. Paul says it this way in Romans 4, verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul uses this as an introduction to the lives of David and Abraham. He's quoting David here. And he speaks there, as you know, of Abraham as that man... To whom righteousness is reckoned, displayed in his faith. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. Faith in what? Faith in the applied atonement provided by Christ on the cross that he would know delight. That he would experience the delight to be able to say, I'm blessed Christ's atonement is applied to me. And so when someone comes to him and says, where is your hope? Why do you have joy? How do you avoid returning insult with insult? How do you do that? How are you so patient? He says, that man says nothing about his own life. And he points to the patience shown him by Christ. Christ who has covered his sins. The Christ who took his sins. John Gill says about this passage, the guilt of it charged upon the conscience of a sinner is a heavy burden, too heavy for him to bear, and the punishment of it is intolerable. Forgiveness is a removal of sin, guilt and punishment. Sin was first taken off and transferred from the sinner to Christ. The surety of and was laid upon him really and judicially as the sins of the people of Israel were put upon the scapegoat typically and was bore by him both guilt and punishment and taken away, finished, and made an end of And by the application of his blood and sacrifice, it is taken away from the sinner's conscience. It is caused to pass from him and is removed afar off, as far as the east is from the west. It is so lifted off from him as to give him ease and peace, and so as never to return to the destruction of him. Wherefore, such a man is a happy man." He has much peace, comfort, calmness, and serenity of mind now, can appear before God with intrepidity and serve him without fear. No bill of indictment can hereafter be found against him. No charge will be exhibited and no condemnation to him. End quote. He's happy. He's happy because he's forgiven And he lives in light of the reality that forgiveness is, in fact, applied to him. There's no pressure to maintain it. He didn't earn it. He didn't choose it. He didn't achieve it. But he rests in it because it was applied to him. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Right? That new nature. You don't have two natures, you have one nature. Replaced your old nature. You had an evil, totally depraved nature. It is replaced with a new, righteous Nature. Now, you do not have infused righteousness. You have borrowed righteousness. You have the righteousness of Christ. So this new nature that you have is really a different issue. It's related, but it's a different issue from imputation. When you are declared righteous, that is God declaring you righteous because you bear the righteousness of Christ. But you know full well that when you get up in the morning, you do not display the righteousness of Christ in your every thought, action, or deed. But in your new nature, you are no longer totally depraved. You have an inclination for the things of the Lord. Verse 18 All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself That new nature displays the reality of Christ's righteousness. Your increasing righteousness, your sanctification, is a mitigated, really a stained display of Christ's righteousness in you. You grow in personal integrity, honesty, repentance, faithfulness. Why? Because that imputed righteousness calls you to do that in that new nature. This is the delight of applied atonement. Think of it. How on earth did anyone who's actually faithfully reading the Bible ever come to the conclusion that you could lose your salvation? Clearly, there was little or no understanding, maybe no awareness of this applied atonement. It's actual, it's definite, it's real. So this applied atonement, this legitimate forgiveness granted by the only sinless substitute results in personal delight such that David can utter these words, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is in fact covered well second i want you to see the agony of silent sin I want you to see the agony of silent sin you've all experienced this and so have i some willingness to withhold confession something to hide therefore a passion for hiding it and it ultimately leads to agony david says in verse three for when i kept silent my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. This is what we would call the physiological effects of unrepentant sin. It's not a matter of whether or not a person is forgiven. It's a matter of being wayward. So when we have the Lord's table together, this is a call, really a clarion call, really a more concentrated, perhaps even a more powerful call to deal with your sin. It's so easy in our culture, not only in our worldly culture, but in the evangelical culture, to blame everything else on someone else. You've been trained to do it. You've been trained to do it in the church. Isn't it interesting that the world, the the psychology industry, caught on much more quickly to the detriment of the self-esteem movement, and the church still hasn't caught on to that in many places Psychologists long ago were saying this was a massive mistake. Look at the results. You have this, what is often today called this snowflake mentality, where if you call someone a snowflake, they think you should go to jail because that's a hate crime. But they have no problem exercising physical abuse upon others who disagree with them. It's happening more and more. It's a self-esteem movement. You know, children being trained to believe that they're great. Therefore, they don't need any kind of discipline or instruction. You know, it'll all work out. Can't imagine how many times I've heard that phrase. Well, it's just a phase. They'll grow out of it. They don't grow out of it. What happens that results in people being willing to still say, well, look, they grew out of it. No, they didn't. They learned from the school of hard knocks. But when the chips are down and when things really get difficult for folks who appear to have turned out okay, just look out for the person who's really not legitimately committed to this concept of confessing sin. He's agonizing in silent sin, and he creates a lot of agony for other people. Verse 4 says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. In other words, think about it. Meditate on it. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now, David's a believer. And so David, in a sense, is enjoying, at least enjoying looking back on God's disciplinary hand of painful love in his life. My strength dried up. Like my strength dries up in the heat of summer. When it's so hot, I'm thinking, I'm not sure I can last another minute out here doing yard work or whatever it might be. Your strength is drained much more rapidly in the heat David illustrates for us what it's like that your strength is dried up when you harbor unconfessed, unrepentant sin. You know, for those with whom you have a platform and you suspect this is going on, the tragedy, destruction is around the corner, don't wait. Be the loving mother, father, sister, brother, cousin, co-worker. Be that loving friend who is willing to point out the reality that you are observing the summer heat drying up the strength of a person. In fact, the matter of their strength being dried up because the hand of God is heavy upon them. Sometimes you just have to sit back and say, well, God will have his way and we will be patient and we will trust the Lord to do what he will do. But sometimes destruction is so nigh, it is so right around the corner that we must be compelled to step in and plead with the unrepentant sinning believer to repent. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, you are very familiar with. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You'll see this in John 5 in a few weeks. A man who was apparently in sin, therefore experiencing some measure of uh, disability. And Jesus tells him to not sin anymore unless something worse happens to him. It's a warning you and I ought to be willing to give with love, in the right context, with the right people. Not everybody, you can't say that to many people. But hopefully, with those who know you love them, you can say it. John Calvin said about this. In this verse, he explains more fully whence such heavy grief arose, namely because he felt the hand of God to be sore against him. The greatest of all afflictions is to be so heavily pressed with the hand of God that the sinner feels he has to do with a judge whose indignation and severity involve in them many deaths besides eternal death. David, accordingly, complains that his moisture was dried up, not merely from simply meditating on his sore afflictions, but because he had discovered their cause in spring. The whole strength of men fails when God appears as a judge and humbles and lays them prostrate by exhibiting the signs of his displeasure. It is the displeased yet loving hand of God that so often brings about mammoth difficulty in people's lives, and yet the hardened heart, yet amazingly, can still reject that loving hand. So we've looked at the delight of applied atonement, but we've also looked at the agony of silent sin. Third, I want you to see and enjoy the resolve of confident confession. David says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you. Again, looking at Paul the Apostle in Romans 8.31, we see this displayed in what we have called didactic delivery, an instructive manner, really a theologizing of the reader, giving sound doctrine so as to help a person understand what's happening in this narrative. While David enjoys the resolve of confident confession, Paul explains for us how it works. Romans 8.31 In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How awful is it that this passage has been used to speak of personal achievement for so many people who will say, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Why are we conquerors, and of what are we conquerors? It's the conquering of sin and death. Who achieved that? Christ and Christ alone. So we are conquerors because he is conqueror. We rest in his triumph, not ours, not our personal achievement. We don't earn salvation. We don't even achieve sanctification ever. Not one drop of it. Not for one ounce of effort. Sanctification is the result of God's predetermined decree that we would engage in our sanctification. You say, but doesn't it require man's effort? Absolutely. But you are not doing the sanctification. You're simply being obedient because of God's grace. And you're thankful for God's grace. So when you engage in that practice that God uses to cleanse you, then he gets the credit. And you worship him. And you thank him. And so you have resolve in confident confession. You can say like David, I acknowledged my sin to you. And you can say like David, I did not cover my iniquity. I chose to stop hiding my sin. You can say like David, I said, now this is David declaring a past resolution. David recounting what he had committed himself to. This confident confession. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. I said that, Lord. Remember that? I said that. That was my resolution. That was my commitment. It was a confident commitment. And in that confident commitment, I am resolved. I'm committed. I'm going to tenaciously pursue the practice of confession. Why? Because it's good. And it has good results. And the Lord shows his mercy, and he shows his compassion. James 5 tells us to confess our sins one to another. When you confess things to the Lord, that is most certainly, if it's a true confession, if it's legitimate repentance, confession, forsaking, repentance, if that's truly what's going on, you're going to make things right. Really, you're going to trust in the Lord to make things right by confessing to those against whom you've sinned. And you say, oh, I can never do that then you'll never experience God's compassion. You'll never experience resolve in confident confession. Well, they don't deserve for me to confess my sins against them because look at all they did against me. That's not what confession's about. Confession is not intended to bring a reciprocal response. There's this give and take. I confess, you confess, right? That's how it works. 50-50, right? No. There's nothing about that. There's no... Dependence upon someone else's confession for you to be a confessor. Your dependence is on what Christ accomplished. You're completely convinced in Christ's atonement, and therefore you're willing to fear God and not fear man. You can proclaim God's greatness over your great sin. Because you have this confident resolve in confession that brings to the surface what God has accomplished. Like we sang this morning, praise the Lord. His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. That's why you have confident Confession because you know that God's mercy is greater than your sin. David knew that. David was confident in God. Proverbs 28 13, as we've looked at a number of times, has told us that he who conceals his iniquities will not prosper. I mean, just cling to that for a moment. Let me stick my own selah between the first half and the second half of. Proverbs 28, 13, you're not going to prosper if you're hiding sin. You know, that person that you love, that you, you, you feel like, well, they're doing pretty well. I mean, they're hanging in there. I mean, we should you know, cut them a lot of slack if there is intentionally hidden sin. You're not going to prosper. But he who does two things, you've heard me say that many times about this verse, haven't you? He who does two things, confesses and forsakes, his sin will find compassion. That's why you have the resolve in your confident confession, because you know that your confession and your forsaking of sin opens the floodgates of God's compassion. This whole matter of repentance is so well explained to us in 2 Corinthians 7. I hardly have time, but I must address it at least briefly. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. This is after Paul has written this very painful letter to the Corinthians, And he says, I don't rejoice in your sadness. I rejoice because there was an element of your sadness that was godly grief. It was God-honoring confession resulting from that pain that was brought to you by my efforts. He then says in verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So much theology in that repentance that leads to salvation without regret. That's the gift of repentance that God grants to a person that you and I can't claim authority over or take credit for. It's legitimate repentance given by God. And that kind of repentance is the kind of repentance that glorifies God and it leads to salvation. You know, what is the ordo salutis? Uh, Does repentance come first or faith? We believe that God grants repentance and faith is immediately on the heels of that repentance. And so when there is a call to faith, when there's a call to repentance, when there's a call to belief, when there's a call to salvation, it's not contradictory to do that when we know that God's going to grant it. We don't understand all that. All we know is that God calls people to repentance. We are to call people to repentance. We're to call them to reconciliation. And we know that he grants faith. He grants belief. He grants salvation to those who legitimately repent. That repentance that's legitimate is exhibited. It's manifested in godly grief. It's a non-accusatory repentance. It doesn't say, well, I did this, but, you know, he did that. It's a godly grief. David says, I acknowledged my sin to you. He doesn't say, I acknowledged my sin and I tainted it with everybody else's sin. You know, I called out everybody else's sin as well. No, I acknowledged my sin. Just deal with your own, let God deal with everyone else's. Eventually, there will be the call upon you to address other people's sin. But if you're living in that, agony of silent sin, then the only thing that you really ought to be concentrating now on is your own sin. So we've seen this resolve of confident confession, and that resolve is manifest for Paul in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 7, where he says, therefore we are comforted. Paul experiences the comfort that comes from knowing that those that he challenged to deal rightly with their own sin, with their own repentance, with their own confession, have actually done so. So believers want for each other. So again, we've looked at this resolve of a confident confession. Fourth, I want you to see the deliverance of sanctified souls. The deliverance of sanctified souls. This is the sweetness of protection from the difficulty that so often pummels those who are engaging in unrepentant sin. David says in verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Stop there for a moment. This ought to make you think of the writer of Hebrews who says, Repent. Well, today is still today. Do not presumptuously say, I'm going to go ahead and do this. I haven't sought counsel. I haven't really done much of anything to determine whether or not this honors Christ. I'm not going to tell anybody about it, or at least not the wrong people, who are probably the right people. I'm going to run headlong into it because this is what I want. I'm getting at least enough affirmation where I'm looking for it that it feels good. So I'm going to go ahead. Don't be that person. Don't subject the body of Christ to that kind of wayward, arrogant living. Be instead the person who experiences the deliverance of a sanctified soul. Watch this. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach Him. The rush of great waters of destruction. The waters of destruction. The the massive waves of destruction that pummel, really drown the unrepentant, sinning believer. God's disciplinary hand of love coming down hard with the rushes of destruction, the rushing waters of destruction. David says, Let therefore everyone who is godly offer prayer to you, O Lord, at a time when you may be found, when you can still be found. It makes me think of the proverb that says, While there is hope, discipline your children. What's the implication? The day is coming where there will be no hope. While there's hope, while the Lord is still able to be found, while you are still able to find him, offer prayer. This is the vehicle by which God delivers the sanctified saint, the godly person. He has a legitimate prayer life. You know, not just at Wendy's before he inhales a cheeseburger, But he legitimately has a systematic prayer life that reveals a dependence upon the Lord. That prayer involves confession. It involves a passionate willingness to expose that which ultimately would bring a person down. Verse 7, you are a hiding place for me. That's why we pray to the Lord, right? He's a hiding place for us. He's a hiding place from destruction. You preserve me from trouble, you surround me with shouts of deliverance, Selah. Isaiah fifty-one three says, for the Lord comforts Zion; he comforts all her waste places, and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving in the voice of song. The Lord brings. Comfort to the godly person who prays to the Lord. Comfort in protection from destruction. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon and of course, Hebrews 12, verse 5, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? This adoptive relationship that God chose us, I often, uh, because it's you know, one of the two, really three adoptive relationships to which I am closest, I often think of the Lindholmes and their willingness to choose Zoe. Zoe didn't choose Daniel and Roxanne. You know, I think she was nine months old. Yeah, I'll take those two. They're fine. No. My dear, dear friend Rob Sines, you'd never know he was adopted uh, if you knew his relationship with his parents. These are his parents. They've always been his parents. He's never wanted other parents. Now, he's an only child. That might have something to do with it. (laughs) They adopted him. They poured their love out on him. That's what this adoptive reality is. He's our hiding place. You and I need that. Well, point number five, I want you to see and enjoy the wisdom of devoted direction. This is very, very simple. You might say it this way. We have the joy of God's word. David quotes God as saying, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. What mother or father has not momentarily allowed his or her child to go into a potentially difficult scenario without peeking around the corner to see what happens? And then cried on each other's shoulder as they walked away. (laughs) Every time we've dropped off a child at a preschool or wherever else, football practice, whatever, I walk away and I think, oh, Lord, please, please don't let them be mean to him. Oh, Lord, please help him, now her, avoid sin. We pray for our kids every night. And one thing I always pray is, Lord, please protect them from sin. I pray for my kids, and I pray for their future spouses, parents. We've just done that all along. I prayed for my wife's parents long before I met her or them. Why? Because they have a heavy influence on her, right? They did back then, they do now. My future daughter's-in-law, my future son-in-law is greatly influenced. They are greatly influenced by their parents. I'm praying for them praying that the Lord will use them to protect their children from sin, that they will meet at a young age and that they will marry early, they will have a short engagement, that that will honor Christ in the context of their local churches, wherever that may be. And the result will be that they will avoid the difficulty that comes with rejecting instruction. You know, if you're wondering about the theology of this, just read about... 5% of the way into the book of Proverbs. Read all the Proverbs. Do a little inventory. Ask yourself, how many times do the Proverbs warn us against rejecting instruction? The beauty and the joy of the person who receives instruction is that he becomes wise. And yet, the person who rejects instruction from those who have proven to be trustworthy He will experience destruction. But here, David gives us the great pleasure of enjoying wisdom that comes from devoted direction. And here I'm speaking about God the Father's devoted direction. He will keep his eye on you. You ever think about that? Especially in those circumstances where you're considering rejecting instruction. Hmm. Your Father's loving eye is on you. Oh, and he wants to protect you. And guess what? He's given you everything necessary for your protection with instruction. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God used a number of people in David's life to accomplish that. He used his father. He certainly used Nathan. He used other counselors. As I said earlier, this is a psalm of repentance, but it's also a psalm of instruction, and it's rooted in God's instructive heart. Are you a parent of an instructive spirit? You probably are. If you have any conviction at all, especially from Scripture, you're probably very instructive. I had a friend years ago to whom I said, you know, growing up, I never, ever received any instruction in my home. And this friend responded, wow, that's different because I never, ever left the house without receiving some instruction. You know, you want to be balanced as a parent. God's perfectly balanced in his instruction to us. His word is perfect. His word is perfect. How on earth did the church ever embrace psychology? How in the world did that happen? I say it's because weak pulpits. Because men in the pulpit are not willing to say what needs to be said. They don't speak of the sufficiency of the Scripture. The wholeness, the perfection, the loving, caring reality of God's heart displayed on paper. So we look to Cosmopolitan Magazine or whatever else, fill in the blank, for wisdom on all kinds of things that we have fully in Scripture. Well, sixth, I want you to see the happiness of a humble heart. This is the beauty of God's willingness to bless us in his clear instructions to us. (laughs) Don't you love the practicality of this statement? Be not like a horse or a mule. The implication is that you might be inclined to be a horse or a mule from time to time. Don't do that. David here is taking over the manuscript again, and he is giving instructions to those who would listen. Don't be like an arrogant, stubborn animal who does not receive instruction but only does anything that he does for two purposes. One, to avoid pain, and two, to get food. Don't be a mule. Horses, mules, do what they do without understanding. All they know is the pain that comes from the bit and the bridle influences them to do something other than what they thought they might be going to do and that's the training process over time that enables a horse to do what his master is requiring of him don't be that person a person that needs a bit or a bridle or a whip Don't be like the horse or the mule who has no understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. What won't stay near you? Understanding. If you're like the mule. Verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Steadfast love. That wonderful line in that rich song. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Goes on to speak of his mercies being new every morning. Do you enjoy the mercies of God every morning? You don't if you reject his instruction. The plain, simple method of his instruction. His word manifest in his church. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, though. The steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Then he says, be glad in the Lord. This speaks of internal exuberance, fullness of in arguable, unstoppable, leaky joy. You can't help but display it. It runs out of you because your hope is in that applied atonement. You're convinced of it because God's word speaks of it. And you gain wisdom because you turn your ear to his instruction. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice Oh, righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. About 20 years ago, I experienced rather significant self inflicted destruction. And I remember a moment um, when after three days of being unable to eat, you know how that is, three days having not eaten, I was convinced I must force myself to eat something, three days without food, that's not good. So I must eat something, and I, I recall having been wayward and run from the Lord, and rejected instruction not just reading god's word but godly people in my life who had proven over time to be trustworthy pleading with me to reject my sin turn from my sin turn to repentance i remember right where i was had a piece of a cold piece of pizza in my hand and uh specifically said to the lord lord if this is What's necessary for me? This pain, this difficulty I'm experiencing, if this is what's necessary for me to experience the happiness and the joy that I know you, your word speaks of as a as a child of God, as your child, then please double the pain. And I think he did. And I was in one of those moments where, you know, you're thinking, I don't think the pain could get worse. But if this is how bad it has to be, then let's do this. And I pleaded with God to give me a repentant spirit. I pleaded with him uh, to change the trajectory of my life. And I had no idea how awful and painful that would be. But that time was so important. It was so critical, so fundamental that the Lord would in time prove me to be a person who enjoys the happiness of a humble heart, a heart that no longer longs to be exalted, no longer wants to be the person who has proven to always be right, but experiences the joy of acknowledging sin and wanting it to be uncovered. I want to ask you this morning if you would be willing to come to the Lord with this mindset. That you would ask the Lord to scour you deeply. Such that you would be willing to confess your sin to Him in a practical way that displays itself in a a tangible confession to those against whom you've sinned. Rather than covering it over, hiding it Even if it seems to be the smallest of sins, but will you do that which is necessary to enjoy the happiness of a humble heart and know the relief of repentance? Father, we look to you for repentance. You've told us in your word repentance is a gift. Lord, if there are those in the room who have experienced a faulty, really a false repentance, we trust that you would grant real repentance. Saving faith that accompanies repentance. Lord, for those who are in Christ, who are covering over sin in the moment, Lord, grant humility, grant courage to enjoy the relief of Repentance by delighting in the applied atonement of Christ, rejecting and overcoming the agony of silent sin, engaging the resolve of a confident confession, enjoying the deliverance of a sanctified soul, enjoying the wisdom of devoted direction from you, and again, the happiness of a humble heart. We ask these things for Christ's glory. Amen.